Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City, Las Vegas, and the Silver State Canine Training Center, your host, Cameron Ford. Welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. We have a great episode in store for you on this one. I get the privilege and honor for me to interview a good friend of mine, Dr. Brian Hare from Duke University, the Canine Cognition Center. Brian and I have been uh, collaborating and working together now for a few years and have developed a good friendship during this period of time. And there is so much good information that I've been able to be a part of thanks to him and what he has shared with me that I finally have a chance to sit down with him, interview him, and let you guys in on a lot of the great information that he has shared with me and some of the stuff that we have collaborated on together. So with no further ado, hope you guys enjoy. Here's the episode with Dr. Brian Hare. Hello, this is your host, Cameron Ford. Welcome to Canines Talking Sense. Today, I have the distinct honor and enjoyment of getting to interview one of my good friends, Dr. Brian Hare from Duke University Canine Cognition Center. And Brian and I have actually been friends for now, gosh, we're getting into our late of our third year here. Um, I watched an episode a few years ago on Nat Geo Wild called Is Your Dog a Genius? And what I saw Brian doing with these dogs and the, and the test with the handlers was very insightful for, to, for me when I looked at how the dogs used the humans for information. And in the working dog world, I said to myself, this is something that uh, needs to be explored. It needs to be researched further. So on a whim, I searched the internet, found them, shot him an email, and luckily enough, he responded back to me within a couple days. And now, a little over three and a half years later, we have been doing some research together on canine cognition in relation to uh, working dogs. And the the journey and the ride has been really, really amazing. So um, I wanted to share some of the information I get from uh, my experiences with Dr. Hare here with you guys and you listeners. So with that, uh, Brian, welcome to the episode. If you don't mind, just give a quick little uh, synopsis of your background and how you became known as the dog guy. <laughs> well, Cameron, first of all, I feel like I've learned way more from you than you probably learned from me. It's been really fun to hang out with somebody who, uh, you know, has done so much with uh, training so many different types of dogs. Um, my uh, experience in, uh, with dogs is really kind of uh, anything but training dogs. I'm really interested in um, what they already understand and how they what they bring to the table when you are training them. So to be around people like you who actually know how to train dogs to get them to do amazing things is always remarkable for me. Uh, so it's been a lot of fun. It's fun to be on the show with you. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember the first time I sat in your office and with a lot of your uh, undergrads and and I'm sitting there pinching myself going, how did this happen to me? How did I end up in this place with all of you guys and all the uh, things that you do? And of course, I felt like uh, uh, totally out of my element because you guys are the academia side. And I've always been, you know, we joke around the knuckle dragging dog people. And uh, 
but like you said, the thing that I pulled away at the end of the day was both sides getting to work together. The practitioners out there doing it, and then the amazing research and stuff that uh, you and your program does to help us get better information and and sometimes confirm beliefs that we have, sometimes totally debunk things that we thought we knew. So uh, at the end of the day, it's awesome that both sides get to work together. So uh, even though every time I go to Duke, I'm always kind of like, wow, how did I get here? Um, I, like I said, and I pitch myself, I get to work with somebody like you all the time. So with all the love fest going on here, but uh, so, <laughs> so with the, uh, with that said, so listeners can understand better what is cognition and and how it obviously relates to dogs and kind of like not necessarily your journey, how you got there, but really what you took from it as you went down this path? Well, I mean, the way to think about cognition is if I were to ask you, do you remember what you ate for breakfast? So if I say that to you, Cameron, uh, do you remember what you ate for breakfast this morning? Yes, I do. Okay. I had uh, eggs and, and sausage and uh, I think it was – their version of hash browns, but <laughs> I'm at a hotel. I'm in Los Angeles this week at a hotel, so I have hotel breakfast food. All right, good. So when you did that, um, you were using your cognition because if if uh, if somebody asked you that and said just think about it, you could think about what breakfast you had eaten this morning, and you would do zero behavior. There wouldn't be, mm-hmm. you know, your lips wouldn't move, your mouth wouldn't move, but you'd be thinking about your breakfast. That's cognition. Yeah. It's it's the you know the thoughts inside your mind uh, that allow you to solve lots of problems, and um, I mean that's the basics of what it is. And the idea is that um, it, I mean the way to think about it as a trainer is when you're training dogs, you obviously think a lot about you know shaping, and dogs have to experience things, and then they learn things through some trial and error process. Uh, they make mistakes, and then they learn from them. Well, in terms of cognition, the way that the way the, the most interesting types of cognition are when animals or even humans are doing trial and error in their minds. So mm-hmm. what we're interested in is when is it and what species and in which context can animals kind of do a trial and error in their head? They can kind of think about different options, uh, remember the past, maybe even generalize some past experience to a new situation they've never even encountered before and solve the problem and avoid a mistake by sort of working out what may be, you know, uh, a bad solution before they even act. And so that would be, you know, sort of uh, the type of cognition we'd be most interested in. And that heavily relates to what we do with detection dogs. Uh, Many detection dog handlers will talk about dog's memory, um, especially if they, let's say they've trained at an area and then maybe three weeks later show up to the area again and the thought process is sometimes well the dog is going back to let's say whatever location because that's where the hide was at so there must be odor still there and at times you know now that i've learned more with the chemistry side of things there's not necessarily odor there but there's the memory of the space the context the odors of that space is that a fairly accurate you know uh example of how that could work that would be a great example where just like you remember your breakfast they remember the odor from previous and they can think about it and as they're traveling the space something cues them and they say oh wow okay this is the place where i i found that odor before so Mm -hmm. um 
so the first thing about cognition is it sort of allows you to do trial and error in your head um, in, in, you know, uh, where it allows for the most flexibility. The other thing is that there are different types of cognition. So it's the thinking behind a cognitive approach is not that there are smart and not smart animals or species. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a PC thing. This isn't like trying to be politically correct. It's just sure. scientifically correct that there are different types of cognition. So for instance, we know in, in people and in animals, there's memory, which we've been talking about, but there's other types of cognition. So for instance, uh, so let's talk about something more social, a social type of cognition where you're able to read the signals of another individual. Maybe it's a human pointing or you can pay attention to the fact that the other dog's tail is flagging or their ears are up or their hackles are up or whatever. And you can mm-hmm. then infer from those signals what they might be about to do. Uh, or what you should do. That would be a totally different type of cognition than memory. And we know that that these different types of cognition, they vary independently. What that means is if you've got a lot of memory, it doesn't mean that you're really good at reading those signals and vice versa. If you're really sensitive to those signals of others, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have an amazing memory. So that's another lesson from cognition is uh, there are different types of cognition, and they vary independently within species and between individuals. And and you bring up one of the biggest things that we talk about, or I talk about in my lectures when it comes to detection dog work, and the reason why I teach handlers to use a bridge or marker-based training system, because so often when, when dog trainers and handlers do not use a marker or bridge-based system, the dog spends so much of its time looking to or watching the handler for those typical body language movements or whatever the handlers may do as their tell to know when they might be getting rewards. So the dog is, yes, searching the environment, but they are also very much aware of what the handler is doing and what the sequence is typically that the handler does when reward is imminent. So one of the what you just brought up there is what I caught on to on that uh, episode on uh, Nat Geo was you're talking about gestural communication, how the dogs really read body language, whether we think they are or not. We think they're focused on the task at hand and our world detection stuff. But as much as they're doing that, they're also very much paying attention to what and how we move where are, you know, and a lot of handlers will know this. As soon as you move your hand, they already know what's going to happen. Or they, they, they make the inference that what's going to happen. And I, one of the biggest things we have to stop doing as much as possible is having all these, as we refer to them as cues, uh, that the dog, obviously, as through you, as your science is proving through cognition, they're very much aware of. They are very much know how the sequence goes. And would you say, uh, based on your training and experience and the research you have done, that dogs can even manipulate us to get us to do those things. Uh, potentially, sure. Um, my, you know, I, I'm going to take it away from um, you know a serious training context and just say that my dog and my house is excellent at that. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he's he's fantastic. I mean, he's a retired service dog and. Um, you know, he certainly has been using his training to manipulate us to get what he wants um, around the house. Um, you know, just as one concrete example, um, uh, he's great at um, 
uh, barking uh, by the door just once or twice um, mm-hmm. to, you know, to get, to get us to let him out. Um, and, you know, I've never seen a dog do that without, um, uh, you know, lots, either they're frustrated, aggravated, and they start barking, um, you know, or, uh, you somehow train them, but he just put together because he had to bark for his service work, um, uh-huh. in different contexts. Um, he just put together that, Hey, wait a second. If I just bark at the store, I can get him to come over here. Um, and then he even started to bark, not when he wanted to go out. We thought he wanted to go out cause that's what he'd been doing. But then he just started to do it because he wanted to be scratched. So we'd open the door. He wouldn't go out and he'd lay down on his belly. So we would uh-huh. scratch him. Um, and so he was really just calling it. He knew he could get us to come over if we would roll out, if he, if he would bark. And then, and then, uh, at that moment he could roll over and refuse to go outside. So I've certainly been trained by my dog. Sure. No. And, and, and what we see, uh, I would say, and, and again, based on what things you have seen in the detection dog world, um, dogs know that sniffing and investigating a certain area is desired. They, they know <clears throat> to check a certain spot and but when they do that if the handler responds in kind because oh wait my dog is now doing something i you know i got my handler to do this which then tells me that reward is coming up next um, absolutely yeah yeah I totally i could totally see that they would you know it's an interaction right i mean if you yeah. think that the information is only going you know the, the pupil is just a a, a sponge absorbing the information from the teacher um you know no it's going to be interaction and they're going to um realize that they can shift their behavior to get what they're what they're after um you know based on what you've taught them i mean the uh you know i think um uh the other thing that uh, you were asking about cognition and what sort of a unique perspective um i think the other thing that's neat about cognition is we're really interested in how um uh, animals and dogs included, how they prioritize different types of information or how they prioritize different types of problem solving. So for mm-hmm. instance, um, you know, when your dog's searching and they're out searching, I mean, they have multiple senses available to them. They're taking in, you know, um, physical information. They're taking in what they smell. They're taking what they see. They're taking what they hear. Uh, how does your dog know which information to prioritize and respond to in which situation. And mm-hmm. one of the things that we found taking a cognitive approach is that there's really a lot of individual difference between dogs in what information they prioritize. And that may play a big role in their ability to solve or, you know, do different types of jobs. So, um, you know, everybody's uh, obviously we're talking about, you know, dogs finding things by by using, you know, their olfactory abilities. But mm-hmm. the one of the main findings uh, that we've seen is that even the most uh, successful uh, olfactory dogs are really prioritizing visual information. And it's not until that visual information is gone that then they sort of switch over to their nose. Um, yep. Now, that being said, there are some dogs that do that switch much quicker. And there's some dogs who really, really resist it. And so that would be another example of where a cognitive approach can help you identify things about individual dogs that might explain to you why this dog is responding so well to my training and this other dog is not. Yeah, no, and that's very much things that 
us as the practitioner, dog handler, trainers, we have seen certain things where we're like, oh, the dog's just being visual. The dog is using uh, the context of, oh, since the, f- the first time I hid something was in a filing cabinet, so now every filing cabinet, it assumes that there's odor there. So then they do their response uh, as the shortcut without really doing any searching. Um, where other dogs, like you said, will make that switch. They'll, they may try that. And of course, as I teach trainers and handlers, don't do anything. Let the dog figure out that this behavior, what they're doing right now is, does not work. And then in the absence of you doing something, the dog will do something, usually something different, obviously. And then when nothing is happening, no interaction reinforcement is going on, the dog tries other things. And that's where typically, uh, we see a lot more sniffing and searching behavior kick in. Yeah. Because now they're like, well, nothing else is working. Let me try something different. And then lo and behold, if the trainer has set up training in the best way possible, the right answer isn't too far away from where the wrong answer was. So that way the path to success is a little bit faster and they can start realizing or make that connection quicker versus if the right answer was way far away, frustration usually kicks in between failure at that first part, uh, part and then to when maybe if they got lucky, found the right answer. So this is why I love these conversations with you because, you know, a lot of times when we're like, I'm talking about, they prioritize this, you know, perceptual information over this other. I mean, we've Mm -hmm. just been studying it sort of as, boy, isn't that interesting how that works? And, you know, this is how the mind of an animal works. But it's so fun to hear in the real world that, you know, you've observed all the same things and that it's actually really uh, important in the real world that, um, you know, this feature of their psychology, uh, you know, is understood better. And so I, you know, a lot of people, I remember my first, uh, you know, big sort of publication with dogs. Um, we, you know, we quote discovered that dogs are really good at using human gestural communication. Now, of course, for anybody in your line of work, that's almost laughable that we discovered that. Um, (laughs) And I remember that I was being interviewed, uh, this is in the early 2000s, I was being interviewed by, I don't remember what it was, New York Times, Washington Post, whoever, and he said, well, mm-hmm. or she said, I don't remember, said, well, what do you think the people back home should take away from this research? And I remember I remember saying, I was like, nothing. I think everybody already knows this. I think the people that are, the people will be surprised are the scientists. Um, and, and so, you know, again, that underscores, I think, the, the, the need for the conversation between, you know, practitioners and scientists, because there's so much to learn from each other. Absolutely. And, and what you just said is often what's said amongst trainers and handlers in the industry is like, oh, well, gee whiz, that's nothing new. I've known that. I've seen that for years. And I totally agree with that. But what we learned or what we knew based on our experiences really had no data behind it. And then as we've also learned, in some cases, we've been able to debunk a few things too that we assumed or that we believed was really the case. So the collaboration, obviously, as we keep talking about between both sides is highly important and it's beneficial to both sides. You know, I, like myself or other dog trainers, they would never think, oh, well, you know, I play a role in benefiting what happens in Duke University. You know, we would never think that we would really help in any way because we're not qualified for that kind of stuff. Plus that stuff's just research. We're out here doing this stuff and it really isn't the case. Both sides really dovetail a lot of things together and it either substantiates or it asks further questions sometimes. 
So, you know, one of the things that, you know, as is, is you, you know, we've kind of talked here and, and discussed, you know, how well dogs can read us for information, um, take in the environment for information, these things all happening in some cases before they're truly using their nose and searching and doing things that we want them to do. In training, how can a handler uh, affect the learning via cognition? Basically, um, if I'm obviously I'm teaching a dog to do something, do we want to be more involved or less involved? What's the best way for dogs to truly learn? Is it allow the dog to make mistakes and problem solve, or should we jump in and you know lead them or lure them along the way? So, so, I mean, these are all fascinating questions and this is where if you're somebody who just wants the answer, you're frustrated with someone <laughs> like, you're frustrated with somebody like me because, um, I'm going to be honest and say, I don't know. Um, but what I do, what I do know is that, um, we have some leads that suggest that, uh, if we can do some fun research, there might be some surprises. So, uh, I wrote a book with my wife called the genius of dogs. And in the chapter, sorry, in that book, my favorite chapter, uh, was a chapter called teaching genius. And it was probably the chapter that was, um, least well received because a lot of trainers, Mm. uh, um, got excited about it in good and bad ways. Um, which was fine. You know, I'm a scientist, whatever I understand. Um, yeah. so, so what we argue in there is that, um, a cognitive approach to training, um, is really where you're trying to think about dog cognition, for instance, and how you can use it to your advantage. And I think that's really what you were just asking, but it's yeah. also understanding that there are going to be situations where because your dog is cognitive, you're going to have to work around it because sometimes their cognition and the way they think about the world is going to really be prohibitive to your training. So let me give a couple of examples. So one place, and you were talking about how, how involved should you be? I mean, sure. the big, the big lesson from comparing uh, dogs to other species like chimpanzees and bonobos to wolves, to dingoes, uh, all of which I've been involved with and had a lot of fun doing. Um, the big lesson is dogs are really special. Uh, the thing that the thing that you know seemed obvious that dogs can use gestural communication, it ends up it's a big deal. Uh, they have an ability that other species uh, have to acquire through a lot of trial and error learning. Dogs seem born prepared to use our gestures. Uh, in a way that other species aren't. And I think the important thing is that people often think about uh, the fact that dogs use gestures as sort of like, oh, it's like a signal, like you point and they just kind of go where you point. What we've discovered and the real discovery is that they're doing something more like what young human infants do, what our own infants do when you point and they begin to learn language is they're trying to think about what you want. They're mm-hmm. saying, oh, he's moving that way because he wants me to go there or he's pointing there because he's trying to show me something. That's really, really different than if you move your arm and like a robot, Oh, okay. When I see something that way, I know I move that way because there's something interesting there. So Mm -hmm. dogs are very special because they have a deeper understanding of our gestures than many other animals do. That's number one. What that means is you can use that understanding in some contexts where they're, they're not going to need a lot of trial and error learning 
because they already understood it. They are, I mean, they were born understanding gestural communication in a way that other animals don't. So against you, though, is the fact that dogs uh, have a very, very, and this is, remember, we're talking about cognition where there are different types of cognition. So here's another great yeah. example of a different kind of cognition, understanding the physical world, the causal properties of the physical world. So for instance, you as a human know that solid objects can't pass through each other. You know that when two objects are connected, they act together. You know that gravity makes things fall down towards the earth. So none of those things are things that dogs are particularly good at. In fact, they're terrible. And relative to say a chimpanzee or a bonobo or even potentially a wolf, they just don't, if anything, they look like a little bit duller, like dullards. And so if you're trying to teach a dog, for instance, that, oh, it's, when it's on a leash, it needs to inhibit and go around something because it's going to get caught, et cetera, that's going to be really difficult. You're going to be working against their cognition where, they're, uh-huh. that, where they have a cognitive weakness. So the question is, can you use the cognitive strength, the fact that they understand us so well, to then get around the things that they completely have no understanding. And the only way they can solve any problems when it comes to the causal world is through trial and error. And that's what we see quite often in training is um, because they're so good at gestural communication, so good at reading our body language and so good at taking in these cues from the environment that, you know, as those of us have done this a long time as trainers, we start realizing, I, I should say, select ones of us that understand this, the more that we are out of that learning equation, allowing the dog to problem solve and find the right answer via the options that are currently available in its environment creates a much stronger ability for the dog to actually learn and understand the task. So that way later on when the variables change and things become a little bit harder, they have a much better understanding and ability to problem solve quicker and not go to the handler when stress kicks in or they can't quite figure out the answer versus the other way is if, of course, I make the joke all the time how many of us in the dog world have zero patience. So when we see the dog struggling, we want to jump right in and help them out. And when we do that, it instantly teaches the dog, well, you'll help me figure this out. And then later on, when the human has no clue what the answer is, and the dog is stressing or trying to figure out what's going on, um, or the search area is much longer than it used to be and so forth, the dog then starts doing things or looking to you for help, and you don't have that answer. So in the beginning stages, if you are good at, in your training, allowing them to figure things out, problem solve and learn, you're creating a much better, more reliable dog that has that ability to say, okay, hold on, uh, let me, let's work through this option and not look to the handler for that help. So let me, let me comment on that um, point that you, you make again here and uh, with re, you know, evidence we have uh, and then end with um, a test for those who may okay. still be skeptical and disagree. Um, because I think that, you know, we need to acknowledge that we're after the truth. We're not worried about being right. And that's really, that's really the difference between science and not science. So, um, we have evidence that would sort of support that observation in that we looked at, um, uh, different groups of Labrador retrievers that were either being, uh, trained to tech 
to detect uh, improvised explosive devices, or we're being trained to um, help people with physical disabilities. And so they're all Labrador retrievers. Um, of course, they've been bred totally differently, and they've been raised totally differently. Um, and one population of Labrador retrievers, uh, if they are super dependent on people, um, uh, it's actually excellent for their chances of passing as an assistance dog. But if they are independent, like what you're talking about, where they try to solve problems on their own, they're probably going to fail out of the training mm-hmm. program. And of course, what we found was the exact opposite. And in, in agreement with what you're saying, you've observed, is that these yep. more independent dogs and these um, you know, explosive training programs are the ones that are going to do well, where they're more socially dependent, are going to struggle with training. So I would just uh, edit what you were saying and say, that for the purposes that you were describing, finding something on your own using your nose, uh, I would agree with you. But if you're talking about helping people, there are going to be other jobs where actually sure. you, you may need that socially dependent uh, dog. Absolutely. And that sort of cognitive profile may be the, the, the more advantageous. Now, let's. I think it'd be fun to think about you know, the data I'm uh, reporting and your uh you know, observations and just say, look, I mean, this is testable for anyone who would disagree. And, and I don't, I think that's, that should be welcomed. I I would, you know, I would enjoy, Hey, I've observed something completely different. I think that's not true. I think that, that, that observation is too narrow or whatever. So, you know, the test would be that you would have two different, two different uh, training techniques, one where you really uh, operationalize and uh, rigorously work out how the human is going to intervene and help the dog in a very active way. And then you have one where the human doesn't. Uh, And you compare those two training techniques and you look at the outcome for the dog uh, job that you are hoping you're going to have dogs helping you, uh, accomplish. Um, and so then, and you, you'd have your measures up front and you'd have your predictions and it's a fair test. And, and then at the end of the day, one wins, one doesn't, or maybe you're surprised and it's more complicated. Maybe they both Mm win or maybe Mm -hmm. neither of them win. Um, no, it's, it's, it's true. It's funny. I did a, I did a test, uh, where I took the odor we had a room set up and we had odor on one wall let's say the wall to my right had odor on it. The wall to my left had nothing on it. When the handlers entered the room, they had to face the wall to the left. So they stayed facing that way. The dog searches the room. Two, thi- two things we saw happened. One was a lot of the dogs stayed face- searching the left wall where the handler was facing quite a bit. And at, at times, you could see they would pick up the odor, the trained odor they're supposed to locate, and they would smell it, but they struggled to leave where the handler was facing and stay indicating on the wall that had target on it. <laughs> now, other dogs would go to the wall that had target odor on it, alert or attempt to alert, but would not see the handler looking their way and did what I call the Lassie effect, which is, hey, run over to Timmy. Hey, I found something. Come over here. And they'd go back to it, and then nothing would happen. They'd run back over the handler again and run back to the odor you know, in their attempt to say, look over here, I found it, let me do my alert so I can get rewarded. And then you had other dogs who would actually go to source, find the odor and wait and, you know, 
you can see them cutting their eyes left and right, like, um, what's ha- is somebody going to reward or tell me I'm right? But they were much more obedient to where the odor was at than they were to the human. Wow. And in those case, and in those cases, it was where the handlers did very little in their searching. You know, as right. far as helping the dog out, they were right. very. Hey, I show up with a leash, hook you up, and you're going to do what you got to do. Um, the other ones where the dogs were more interactive with the handlers or looking for the handlers were very used to being typically on a six foot leash, um, being we call detailing or presenting the search area quite heavily. So the dog was used to the human, the handler being more involved. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like you said, as, as a easy experiment, what we saw was the more independent dogs that didn't really get much human interference or inference from were able to be more obedient to where the odor was at versus the dogs that had a lot of a lot more human or handler interaction struggled. I mean, dogs would acknowledge odor, but they would they really wanted that handler to be facing that way or that handler to be closer to it and and help them or be a part of that equation. So that was that's a unique one. And I always challenge the listeners or readers to do this test. You know, try it out. You know, you only need a typical, you know, let's say 12 by 12 room or, you know, it needs to be wide enough that, you know, where you're standing facing the blank wall is just far enough away where the target odor is at. The dog has to, you know, stay over here and stay focused to it despite what you do. So that's another real interesting one that kind of shows those two things. Yeah, I, t- I, I totally agree. I think one of, one of the um, misperceptions people have because of the way that most people interact with science is science is something that other people do. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've tried through Dognition and through all sorts of other ways to, you know, show that, look, not all science is rocket science. Some science is actually pretty straightforward stuff. Uh, and it's super fun. And so, you know, doing a simple comparison of five dogs, you do this way and five dogs, you do that way. Even if you, you have two people independently score what the dogs do in those two conditions, I mean, you're doing science right there and check your notes. I mean, you know, and, and see, see if, you know, you're surprised as long as you are, uh, you know, being a fair umpire and uh, calling it the same way for both, or even better, you don't know which condition the dog was in as you're watching. That's even better. Um, yeah. Then, then, I mean, it's not, it's not that complicated. You do those things and you can get some really nice answers where you could feel more confident that it's not just, you know, I'm puffing up my chest and saying I'm right because I'm some kind of authority. I mean, the best authority is data. Yeah, absolutely. No, and it's funny you mentioned one of the other tests. So obviously the project that you and I have been working on, um, one of the tests that you and I discussed was we called unsolvable. And what you had in the past clocked or collected data on was how long the dog would stay focusing on you to basically help them solve the task, which in this case is a basically a clear container with the food or the ball locked inside of it. And the dog has to, you know, you guys are counting the time, how long the dog is looking to you for like, hey, come help me get this out. My version of it was, no, I don't want to, you know, count that time. I want to count how long they stay working at it, trying to get that object out of there that's the data I want because that's relevant in our world. So it was funny that, you know, when we talked about that, uh, we looked at it from two different perspectives because, you know, I wanted that independent dog who didn't use me for anything. And you're like, Oh, that's a good point because 
what you guys had done so far with the uh, other program dogs that we're working with uh, in the assistance world. You know, you guys wanted that dog that would be like, "Hey, let's, I'm looking to you. Can we help? Let's let's get this, you know, solved." Yeah, no, that's so, right. That, I mean, that's it. That's exactly what we found. Um, and it's a good point you made is that um, uh, the dogs that you know sort of ask for help do better in the assistance world, and it's the exact opposite in um, you know the explosive detective detection world. And, and I mean, that's one of the points, you know, I think it's important to understand about you again, going back to your original question, what is cognition? Cognition is not about being smart or not. It's that there's different profiles. And so, you know, is a dog that asks for help dumb? No, it's not dumb. Is a dog that doesn't ask for help dumb? No, it's not dumb. They just have different skill sets and they're going to be good at solving different types of problems. And the question is, what is the skill set you need your dog to be good at, to be able to learn the things you need to teach them? Yep. So obviously you get the question all the time. What is the smartest dog breed? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Um, So uh, we have the world's largest data set on this, Cameron, uh, through Dog Nation. We have tens of thousands of people who uh, have um, played uh, cognitive games with their dog at home uh, through what we call citizen science. It's just anybody at home can do some science and contribute data. Uh, and so we have uh, hundreds of breeds, um, data from hun- you know hundreds of breeds. And the finding is overall that um, the big, the big take home finding is if you want to know what you can learn about your dog's psychology or cognition from their breed, um, you're going to be disappointed. Um, it, it, it really tells you what your dog looks like if you know what your dog's breed is. Um, and especially when we're talking about, um, you know, AKC or pet dog populations, I'm not as much talking about the working dog world. And, Mm -hmm. and so if you go to, for instance, the AKC website and you see how they describe the physical, uh, characteristics of different dog breeds versus how they characterize the behavior and intelligence of different dog breeds, you'll see that it's very, very rigorous when you, when it's the physical characteristics of dog breeds. So when it starts to get to the behavior and the intelligence, it gets super squishy, like, oh, they're caring or they're concerned and loyal. And I mean, nobody's been breeding for that. Oh, yeah. And so those yeah. are just cute words that they use because they're all wonderful dogs and they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings that the breed got described in a bad way or whatever. So in the data that we have, we measured five different types of cognition. We know that dogs have at least five different types of cognition and they probably have more, but we have good data on at least five. And mm-hmm. so when you ask the question, okay, fine, blah, 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 different dog breed. <laughs> you can't learn. I don't believe you because, you know, so come on, just tell us who did the best. Who was the smartest yeah, breed? Yeah. Surely it was the Border Collie. Surely it was, you know, the German Shepherd, Shepherd, whatever, whatever. So we have five different uh, measures of cognition. Um, Everything from empathy to using social gestures like pointing, memory, uh, inferential reasoning, uh, and also the degree to which a dog breed is sort of cunning, meaning it can, you know, use its cognition against you. Um, On those five measures, no single breed is the top breed on two different measures. So uh, there was, you know, five breeds that different breeds were sort of the top breed on those five measures. 
Um, but the interesting thing is it's not even that meaningful because um, the next breed was not significantly different statistically. Um, you know, basically uh, there's a lot of breeds that sort of clump at the top on all these different measures and there's no breed that's best on any of these things. So um, yeah. my favorite is, uh, and this is a big surprise. If you talk, talk about, uh, uh, we'll do two. I'll tell you two of the winners here. Um, okay. So gestural communication, we uh, you point to food uh, with your foot or with your arm. Uh, the idea of the mm-hmm. foot is most people don't point to things with their foot to their dog, so it's a little bit new. Yep. Um, some people do, but most people don't, um, whereas everybody gestures with their arm. So uh, the, the breed that's the top dog at using gestural communication, uh, do you want to guess what breed it, it, it was in our data? I don't even dare to guess because it'll never be right. <laughs> it was, it, it, I, I was not right either. Uh, I'm a huge Labrador Retriever fan. It was the uh, Bernese Mountain Dog. Wow. Yeah, I would have never guessed Right? That. Like what? <laughs> yeah, not even on my radar. So, you, so, the, so, and then the next one is on memory, okay? So uh, we, have, okay. we have memory tests where you hide food in one or two places. The dog has to remember where it is and you delay, you know, let's say 60, 90, 120, 150 seconds, which actually when you get to uh, – you know, a couple minutes, that's pretty tough, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's way beyond what kitty cats can do. Sorry, kitty cat people. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, um, I mean, that could be even, that, that length can even be hard for people in, in you know, great apes and primates. Um, sure. So, you want to guess? I would, I'll, I'll do this. I'll say maybe a herding breed. Oh, that was very brave, Cameron. Very brave. Yeah, uh, I know, right? It was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was, um, uh, Pitbull. Ah. Pitbull Terrier. Uh, no, wow. Number one for memory, right? I'm like, what? I mean, again, I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And so I could go on and on. I mean, the um, uh, I'm trying to remember the uh, Border Collie was not on the top five on anything. German Shepherd doesn't even show up in the top ten of anything. Yeah. Um, and so if, if, you know, this is one of those things, if, if you want to do science, cause you want to prove yourself right, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe skip the science. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Go, just go on their, their personal experiences. Yeah. There. Cause you, you will almost certainly be wrong, but, but if you like to find out the truth, it's, uh, it's a fun way to uh, proceed. Yeah. Okay. So that brings up to a, another good point, which is, Obviously, us humans had come into things with bias. So how much can or does human bias affect dogs? So a lot, actually. Um, I'll give you a couple examples. So, um, And I love this area of research. It's, it's sort of a new area. Um, and it, it's not – it doesn't – when I first start telling you some of this, it's not going to seem directly relevant to your work. But actually, I think it is crucially relevant. Um, mm-hmm. So – Number one predictor of how fast a dog is adopted out of a shelter, uh, it actually has to do with the baseline rate at which they twitch a muscle in their eye called the 101AU muscle. It's the muscle that creates the guilty uh, eye in dogs, the guilty look. And there's a baseline rate that dogs just twitch that muscle, that they contract that muscle. And some dogs move that muscle and use that muscle more than other dogs. And the dogs that move that muscle the most are adopted out about three times faster than the dogs that don't move that muscle as often. 
And so that's a great example where it has nothing to do with how good the dog is going to be as a pet. It's that they made this dog happens to make this eye movement that makes people feel a lot of empathy and they can't leave that dog behind. Wow. So that would be one, that would be one example. The other example is there's been um, some blind tests where, you know, a variety of different kinds of dog experts have been asked about they're, they're looking at a whole um, array of pictures of dogs and they ask, uh, you know, tell me about the, you know, how smart is this dog or how well behaved is it? All sorts of questions about the dog's intelligence and behavior, but also about all sorts of other um, attributes of the dog as well. But really what they were after is they manipulated the length of the dog noses and okay. uh, it ends up that um, the length of uh, your dog's nose predicts how intelligent people think the dog is. Wow. So dogs with long noses and dogs with short noses are not perceived as being particularly intelligent. Whereas dogs with middle-sized noses, so that would be like a German Shepherd or a Labrador Retriever, people perceive them as being more intelligent. Now that is based on nothing, and people aren't even aware they're doing it. Um, yeah. But uh, and it ends up that on many measures, you know, long-nosed dogs and short-nosed dogs are doing just as well, if not better, than medium-sized, medium-length dogs. So that's another bias that people bring; they're not even aware of. Uh, another one from our own research group, um, and we're working on getting this one published. I think I told you this one, Cameron, is we gave a bunch of veterinarians, uh, actually over a thousand, yes. over a thousand veterinarians. And we gave a thousand people from the public a survey and it had pictures mm -hmm. of a variety of different breeds of dogs. And we just simply asked the question, um, how sensitive is this dog to pain? So you just had to indicate by moving a slider sort of, you know, oh, this dog is very sensitive. This dog is not sensitive at all. Or, oh, it's just kind of, you know, in the middle or I don't know. Yeah. Um, so the truth is that there is no scientific evidence that different breeds of dogs experience pain differently. Uh, but the veterinarians and the public had very strong opinions that different breeds of dogs experience pain in different ways. In the case of the public, it was the size of the dog that predicted how much pain people believed they experienced. So larger dogs experienced less pain than smaller dogs, for instance. Mm -hmm. In veterinarians, uh, it, that pattern did play out. Size still did explain their response to how much pain they thought dogs experienced. But they also had a whole host of different breeds that violated that um, pattern that um, – uh, that they would, you know, argue uh, the dog experienced or didn't experience pain. So, for instance, you know, uh, huskies and malamutes uh, experience are very sensitive to pain, even though they're larger, as an example. of. Uh, and one of the interesting things about the veterinarians, too, was that we had um, lots of different cohorts of vet veterinarians, so basically decades of veterinarians. And none of the, the younger vets and the, you know, most experienced, wisest vet, vets uh, all had the same pattern of um, bias towards seeing pain experienced differently by different dogs. And okay. unlike the public, where there was a lot of uh, variety in their responses, there was it was a very narrow set of responses from the veterinarians. So they sort of all thought the same thing about how different dog breeds experience pain. So 
it suggests that, you know, going to vet school, people are sort of taking away some lessons about how dogs experience pain, but there's no evidence that no one's demonstrated that, uh, you know, and they all have the same, you know, neurobiology. They have the same skin thickness, et cetera. There's no reason to suspect that they do experience pain differently. And this has huge implications for how medicine is given pain relief, um, you know, how we treat um, dogs in pain or when they're suffering or even know that they're stressed. You were talking about that as an importance for your own work. Um, and so, you know, you in your business, you I know you have to select dogs. You have to figure out which dog is suffering, which dog is smart enough to learn all these things. And all the examples I just gave are directly relevant to the questions you are asking as you're assessing different dogs. And there are probably subconscious biases that are playing a big role. Do you want to attend America's largest police canine training seminar? Well, make sure you head to HITS, which is held this year in Chicago at McCormick Place, August 13th through the 16th. HITS is America's premier canine seminar, the largest, most diverse canine training event in the United States. This year is HITS' 13th year of coming together. Are you a canine trainer, handler, or supervisor? This event is one of the best in the nation that brings together all the professionals within our industry, offering classes in a variety of different areas to ensure all of our attendees get the best, most diverse education. Check out hitscanine.net, that's www.hitsk9.net for further information and register today. This episode was brought to you by Silver State Canine. Silver State Canine is one of the nation's premier canine training facilities. Are you somebody looking to have a professional career as a canine handler? Then attend one of our handler courses. Are you currently a handler and looking to become a canine trainer? Then attend one of our train the trainer courses. We also offer a variety of fully trained detection canines. Are you the sport of nose work? Silver State Canine also has you covered. We offer a variety of nose work classes and nose work seminars. For further information, visit our website, www.silverstatecanine.com. That's www.silverstatek9.com. So let's take that to the next step. Training. I'm a handler. I'm working a dog. And I come into an area where I think I know something. Does that, is that obviously something we can, that biased, uh, passes on to the dog? So you're really confident that you know something in terms of where something's hidden? Potentially, yes, correct. Yeah, I, I definitely, I mean, the other thing we know is that, um, uh, the, you know, even the, um, and I, I, I know that in your community, your, your folks are very sensitive to this. I've seen it in, in your work and in other people too. But the, the way you use your voice uh, is hugely important. Um, and there's an interaction again. Um, so if you're super confident and you have like a big, deep voice and, you know, you're saying, yeah, this is a good job. You're going to find it in here um, uh-huh. versus, um, you know, you know, oh, come on, you can do it. I don't know, you know, maybe you know, look in there or whatever. Uh-huh. You're totally changing the behavior of the dog. Um, mm-hmm. You're changing its confidence, its excitement. Um, 
especially if it's a dog and we know there's huge individual variability in how responsive different dogs are to that type of input. So, so absolutely. You come in really confident and you're working with a dog that's super responsive to your vocal patterns. You've totally changed Mm -hmm. the behavior of the dog and you didn't even necessarily know it. Yep. And what about your body language? Not necessarily just the, the actual, like you said, uh, hand, arm, gesture, communication. But what about your is your body language uh, show biased, or the dog can pick up from that? Uh, sure. If you've got a dog that is, you know, sort of lo- prioritizing, as we talked about before, the you know human uh, centric information, um, then yes, I mean it's gonna. You know, we know there's lots of evidence that dogs um, know when your eyes are open or closed. That they know which direction you're looking. They know uh, potentially about your facial expressions, which in my own research group, we have not been able to demonstrate, but it's been replicated so many other times and other by other people that um, I would say that it's, it seems like there's some compelling evidence that dogs even may be attending to your mood as expressed in your face and that that is communicating to and may, um, you know, increase or decrease um, different types of behavior. Um, so absolutely, uh, you know, it, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to say that this is unsolvable, but your, you know, your, your question, uh, you know, are certain dogs really paying attention to a lot of information that you may not be aware of? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. No. And, and, and obviously, like I said, as, as the people out here being dog hunters and trainers, we, we see a lot of things. And without really knowing the, the the reason behind or how it works, sometimes we just think, oh, this dog is just trying to we, – we call them liars, cheater, cheaters, and stealers. These dogs are just trying to lie to you all day long. They're trying to cheat you to get that toy from you. They're going to do whatever they can uh, to manipulate you to you know, or take the easiest way possible to – do what they have to do to get that toy from you. All right. Well, let me let um, me let me launch off that though, and and then perfect. then surprise some people maybe, and maybe have. Okay. I, I think perfect. some people will will be uh, uncomfortable and disagree with me. Um. But per- no, this is perfect. But um, you said the dog will lie, cheat, and steal. Um. So in yep. in the context of thinking about the development of human cognition, and when is it that a human is able to lie, cheat, and steal? Well, if you ask a developmental psychologist, they would tell you that there is a moment between the age of three and four years of age where a human finally understands that other people can know things that they do not know, number one, and two, that other people may know things that are incorrect about the world. So, for instance, somebody thinks that there are candies inside of a container, but the child knows they're pencils. And so you understand that the person who thinks they're candy, there's candy there has what's called a false belief. They have a belief about the world that is incorrect. So there is no evidence. Oh, sorry. One more step. And understanding a false belief then leads children to be able to intentionally deceive and create false belief in other people. So I know that people can know things that are incorrect about the world. So now that leads me to learn how to do that myself in really flexible and deceptive ways, okay? So now I can basically lie, steal, and cheat, as you said, intentionally. Yep. There is absolutely no evidence that any animal, even a chimpanzee, a bonobo, a bottlenose dolphin, can do that. 
So whatever, and I'm not saying that, that animals don't deceive, and I'm not saying they're not intentionally deceiving in some case, but it's very important to understand that they're not doing it by intentionally creating a false belief. They're not capable of that because they, no yeah. animal has ever tested, has ever passed the same test that you could have passed when you turned four years old. Sure. And it's funny because the way that it's brought up in the dog world is, oh, your dog will try things on you all day long to get you to give them their toy. And I think both you and I can agree that's strictly because of the the improper training steps that the dog realized, oh, there's other alternatives here, options to me to get my toy which is the things we've talked about earlier, where the body's at, what the human's doing. And it's like you said, it's not that they intentionally did it that way. They've learned it that way because we've told them, here are these tells that are indicative of potentially getting your reward. Well, okay, so let me, so, so let me use more cognitive language there and just say okay. what I would, how I would talk about that in a slightly different way is while dogs can't intentionally deceive you by creating a false belief or putting incorrect information in your head on purpose, they do understand and they use your body language and your gestures to try to figure out what it is you want. And what it is you don't want. So that's different. That's, that's understanding your desires and your, your intentions. That's very different than understanding your beliefs. So these are thought, these are thought to be completely different types of cognition. So when they're deceiving you, they may be manipulating what you want and what you desire, but they're not doing it based on understanding your beliefs. Correct. Yep. Perfect. So. That leads to the next part here, which is there's an interesting thing that you and I talked about before about persistence in and how it relates to inflexibility, mm-hmm. and especially with learning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in in uh, in the working dog world, we want these dogs that are highly persistent. They're very motivated for the objects and the, whatever it be, the food, toy, whatever you know they're tested for. Um, but what I learned through you and through the uh, some of the cognitive tests that I've done is the dogs with that high, really high level of persistence end up being the most inflexible when it comes to learning. Mm-hmm. And because they're, they, they're stuck on, yeah. well, it's, it's right here, right here, right here. Even though th- the answer is clearly it's not there anymore or it's not there at all. They're just, they, they don't switch gears to try something. Yeah. Different. So we, like that yeah, we call that perseverate. So they, yeah, so they perseverate. So, the, you know, and this is great because it, lead, it leads me to one training uh, finding that I wanted to make sure I shared with your listeners. So perseverate yeah. means that um, basically um, the more training you give the dog, the worse they'll get. And the less training you give mm-hmm. that dog, the better they'll be. So um, really the definition of training is you're trying to reduce the number of things the dog does uh, in the situation uh, that you're hoping they'll perform well in. Um, You know, so basically if they smell something, they um, indicate by, you know, sitting down. Um, So you're trying to reduce what they do basically. Um, And so Part of the problem, though, is that you need the dog to be flexible and a flexible problem solver. And that's where those two things come into contest. When you're trying to get them to do this one thing, i.e. you're training them to, you know, respond and um, 
you know, indicate they found something. Mm-hmm. But you want them to flexibly deal with detours and not get distracted by, you know, uh, things running around the environment and uh, not be afraid, et cetera. And don't think about and remember where you fa- last found something. We're trying to look for something yep. new. And so um, absolutely, um, uh, perseveration where the more training you give an animal to reduce uh, and try to get them to do something, it can be in competition with flexibility and so then there's individual variability there some dogs are going to be able to kind of handle both and then other dogs are going to really get stuck because they're so driven as you say and they're going to be perseverating like crazy Uh, and all they can think about is and all they can remember is um where they found it before instead of moving on and more flexibly um searching the future so so let me bridge though quickly and just another surprising finding from the uh, okay. cognitive literature, because I, you know, sometimes training more is not good. Um, that's lesson number one, and we're not exactly sure mm-hmm. when. Um, we don't have it all worked out. I mean, you guys probably know better than we do, but I just mean, you know, I can't show you the experiments where people have demonstrated it cleanly that this is when you should train more and this is when you shouldn't. Two is um, there is evidence, and this I love this one where. Um, how what how do you choose how frequently to train and there's some really nice comparisons where dogs are trained five days in a row versus they're trained on five days once a week and it ends up that the dogs that are trained once a week actually learn much faster and retain what they learn for much longer than the dogs that receive the training every day so it took five weeks it took longer to get them to be better but it took less time uh, to get them at that skills level than it would have been if you trained them every day. So, um, you know, I think our natural tendency is, hey, elbow grease, let's get out there and, you know, get these guys working. But we actually don't, we don't oh, yeah. know. Uh, and in fact, there's some evidence against that idea. And uh, there's been experimental demonstrations where that just may not be the case. And you and I had this conversation one time because I even asked, I, I was, I saw something like this where, you know, we were doing and training four or five sessions in a day. And through a conversation with you, you're like, you might want to try just one session, wait a couple hours, do one more session. And what you might see in that second session is it's you know, drastically worse or you know worse than that first session. But let the dog sleep overnight. And then during the sleep, you know, you come back the next day and you do the the training session again, you'll actually see a much better response typically uh, to that training session. And you explained why, you know, what happens during the dog sleep. So if you want to kind of expand upon that or a conversation there with, when it came to that. Yeah, that's one of the other big findings. It's called memory consolidation. And it's been shown in everything from rodents to humans. It's very well understood and very well demonstrated that especially when it comes to memory and learning tasks, when you're training a human or an animal, something that you want them to remember for a long time, uh, sleep is vitally important. And that um, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, I find this, to, I, it's not my work, but I find it, I, it's just so cool that this is the case. So um, often, whether it's a chimpanzee, a human or a rodent, you train an animal uh, to do something and you test them, you'd think, well, you know, I just did it. So surely they're going to remember best a few minutes after I taught them that. Mm-hmm. It actually ends up that is not the case. 
So an animal performs best on something you train them on day two or three after they have had a significant and um, solid night of sleep Mm -hmm. and their memory has had a chance to consolidate. So you will see much better performance, sometimes two to three times the level of performance on day two and three than you do immediately after the training session. Uh, simply because the neurons at night have been able to um, uh, form uh, much stronger bonds, uh, synapses have strengthened, and uh, the memory uh, has formed in a way that uh, it's not available immediately or even an hour after you have trained an animal to do something. So sleep is really vitally important. And it it goes to show the dogs that – train and go right into a kennel may not be getting that adequate number or level of sleep because of course all the dogs do is activate off of each other and things like that and then that in in an indirect way interferes with that process we just talked about yeah so you either want dogs that um you know can sleep through anything uh or you're gonna have to come up with some kind of new solution um uh if you wanted to enhance their performance um so uh absolutely one of the things we're working on right now um we have some uh you know i'll share it with you guys it's not published and i don't know if it's going to replicate um but we have some uh fun pilot data that suggests that um we've got two conditions Um, we're training dogs uh just a simple sit and stay um and we're bringing them back the following day and just seeing okay uh do you remember what you learned the last time you were here? These are pet dogs. They're all really badly behaved. Mm -hmm. So actually sit and stay is really difficult for them. Um, uh, If it was in Germany though, it would not be the case. Um, But here (laughs) in in the U S you know, the dogs really struggle. Um, But we, one condition uh, we just have the dogs lay down and sleep and be calm. Uh, The other condition we actually uh, take them out uh, to our play yard and actively play with them mm-hmm. um, for about 10 minutes afterwards. Uh, and we found that uh, on the following day, the dogs that actively play after for 10, 15 minutes, they're learning and performing about twice as well as the dogs that the day before just laid down and rested after their uh, learning session. Nice. So the enrichment has a, a significant role. Yeah. So, so basically post training, uh, playing with a dog, um, you know, um, may be another important way that you can enhance memory formation. Um, you know, uh, and there are ideas about why that is. Um, we didn't get this idea out of nowhere. It's been demonstrated in rodents and, uh, there was actually one study in laboratory dogs, but that's why we wanted to try to use pet dogs, um, Mm -hmm. to see if we could take it out into the real world. So, and this will be my last question before we wrap it up here. You and I have also had some interesting discussions regarding selective breeding and selective breeding into cloning type things. And in those discussions, and and even in your book, you talk about selective breeding and what that has done to the dog. So in this day and age, there's lots of uh, what we call selective breeding we're seeing because people, we need more detection dogs, right? So 
we're seeing things now where you know the the Labrador was the most popular uh, professional detection dog that was out there that was we call single purpose you know type dog and it was the happy go lucky floppy ear dog. Well, now of course the demand for that has skyrocketed and they're not as readily available anymore. So now we're starting to see the pointer more often. You're even seeing some experiments and this alcohol experiments, but Bisla mixed with Labrador or pointer mixed with Labrador. Uh, what are your thoughts and feelings on that? And then you can branch off just a little bit into the cloning part because you and I have talked about that because just because you clone something doesn't mean you're getting, you're genetically marker-wise getting the same thing, but there's a lot of other things to consider that comes from you know the cloning, the embryonic sac, the mother's stress levels, all those kind of things that we talked about. But I'll let you kind of just broad strokes kind of cover uh, a little bit of that information. Well, I'm, I'm a professional skeptic. And, you know, that's what I'm paid to do uh, is, you know, a big part of science is being your own worst enemy. And um, if I was trying to uh, help protect people um, and if we just forget for a moment about feasibility, uh, which, of course, is, you know, easy for me to do uh, in this thought experiment. But let's just do it for the moment. Um, I wouldn't be thinking about, okay, which right, which is the breed that's going to be the correct breed. Yep. What I would want to know is, okay, what are the behaviors and what are the cognitive abilities that we know are important to getting these jobs done? And let's go out and measure them and let's measure them as widely as we can and as, and, and as wide a group of dogs as possible. And I wouldn't be worried about um, choosing a breed uh, that you thought was going to be the winning breed because at least based on the best scientific measures that we have, um, it's surprisingly disappointing uh, because within any breed, there's so much individual variability. Uh, it really swamps out any breed signature. Mm-hmm. Um, now the exception to that is when you've got a population of dogs, like, um, you know, some of the, as an example, uh, the group of assistance dog, uh, you know, breed, uh, the, you know, the group of assistance dogs we work with, I mean, they've, they've been a closed breeding population. Um, obviously they outbreed to, you know, reduce inbreeding, but they have been a closed breeding population. Uh, and while they look like Labrador retrievers, they're not Labrador retrievers. We know cognitively, behaviorally, and even physiologically, um, we know that, you know, for instance, their oxy, their circulating oxytocin levels about double what it is in a normal Labrador retriever. Um, and so I wouldn't be looking at, oh, this is a Labrador retriever. Those are the ones we need. I would be, okay, here are the objective measures. I don't even care what the dog looks like. I don't even want to see a picture of the dog. I just want to look, here are the things that we want to measure, and I want to see its scores. Uh, and then let's see what turns out. Is it really going to end up being the dogs that we thought it was going to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I think there'd be some surprises. Now I understand feasibility wise, people just have to make some decisions. Sure. Um, but I do, uh, my guess is we're missing some fantastic opportunities and we may be overplaying the importance of breed, uh, in some of these, um, jobs we need dogs to do. And some of the research that you and I have both seen, it's a lot about the body chemistry or brain chemistry that tells us far more than what the breed really does. And if we could, you know, uh, have a better way of getting that information, we could find dogs best suited or better suited for what we, what we want versus the typical standard selection test. But obviously in lieu of that, we're, we're relegated to doing those, those tests, which many times are very subjective, 
Um, obviously, as how you and I got together was, you know, the testing process first, which was, you know, I still did all my typical subjective, you know, canine selection test, but I ended my test. Once I picked my candidates I liked from that, I then did the cognitive testing, which then really expanded upon what I did. And I learned a whole lot more uh, about that particular dog and was able to best select the dog for our line of work. But at the end of that, those tests probably line up pretty well with if we did, you know, drew blood and, and tested some things, we would see uh, those, those uh, body chemistry uh, results matching what we're looking for. Would that be somewhat correct? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely the holy grail is, um, you know, can we have uh, some kind of uh, physiological or even genetic marker that we could use to help predict what a dog will do when it's being trained to do all these different jobs we needed to do. I don't think we're quite there yet. I think some people think they're getting close, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, you know, I, I think there'll probably be some bumps in the road. Um because it's a little, it's complicated. I mean, you know, you wanted me to talk about cloning dogs. So a lot of people, you know, think that's, you know, going to be the solution. Uh Uh, We've got a genetically um, uh, demonstrated successful dog here Mm -hmm. uh, that was trained to be a superstar. So certainly we just clone that dog and, you know, now we'll have a hundred of that amazing, a hundred versions of that amazing dog. It ends up, it's not that, it's not that simple. Nope. Um, because the same genome responds very, very different, uh, across different environments. And so, uh, it ends up the environment is playing a huge role, uh, as everyone expects. Uh, and even if you were to try to, um, minimize environmental difference, uh, you still, uh, when that's been done with cloned rodents, you still see huge individual variability in behavior. Um, even when you've got rodents that are cloned and you have them reared in essentially the same environment, they still experience things differently because yep. they're individuals. Uh, and so, um, you know, you'll, you might minimize some of the variability that you have to deal with, but you'll never get rid of it. No, and I think the only thing, you know, again, correct me if my assumption's wrong, but the only thing I truly see that comes from the cloning aspect is, yes, we may be able to avoid some of the typical health issues we saw uh, that was that plagued certain things, but the, the, the risk versus reward is way off if that was the goal. You know, there's so many other things that can come from doing this for the benefit that we get from it. Yeah. And on the health stuff, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, I mean, I think that you could, you know, uh, there are some things, yes, but, but I mean, you know, the whole reason that you have genetic variability is, uh, and even sexual, you know, uh, reproducing species is it's to create variability that then helps deal with environmental insults, whether it's viruses, bacteria, um, or, um, morphological, uh, you know, m- malformations on and on and on and on. Yeah. Um, and so it really is the variability that protects uh, a population against disease, not having a single yeah. perfect individual. Yep. Um, if you look at uh, monoculture and agriculture, sure, it's great for a few generations until, you know, the organism's that eat the crops catch up and yep. then you're toast because there's no variability. Yeah, no, it's, it's, 
it's super interesting stuff, but at the same time, it it walks us down a very you know unknown, dangerous road that's out there. Well, I think I mean, and I hate to end it this way, but I do think it's uh, just people are obsessed with technology, and yeah. it must be that a technological solution that's super complicated will be the way that to save us. And I'm not so sure. I think there's probably some, you know, some simple science that takes a lot of hard work that may get us farther faster if we invested in it. Absolutely. And that's, you know, as again, we've always talked, it's the hardest thing is, is sometimes, you know, getting the collective behind some of this good research and pushing it down the road because sometimes it's just not as sexy as something else is, you know? So, but it, I think it's conversations like this, like we're having today will at least help inform people that, you know, at least we are now, especially in our dog world, far more um, ingrained or associated with scientific research than we've ever been before, especially when it comes to cognition. Because as you and I spoke, and I was shocked to hear this when you told me, you know, I was one of the only ones or the only one not from academia out there doing the research on cognition with dogs. And just in general, in our working dog world, we've not had science necessarily not going to care about us, but just not uh, have that research put into us. So now we are seeing it more and more and it's a, it's a big benefit and people such as you and, and the, my other colleague get to work with Dr. Hall from Texas tech. Um, and then Evan from uh, university of Arizona um, being, a, and many other ones that are out there that I'm not even mentioning, but we are finally getting, uh, getting that research put into this world that we've just never had before. So I joke around, I call it, we're, we're kind of in a Renaissance period uh, when it comes to, to dogs and studying dogs through science. Well, Cameron, uh, you know, I can't wait to see your Sistine Chapel that you're going to create during this Renaissance period. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 I, and I'm glad to uh, you know, have known you. Uh, and and uh, no, seriously, uh, super fun and so thankful for you uh, being such a good ambassador and, uh, um, you know, have a, letting me come talk to you about all this. And um, I can't wait to... Uh, you know, hear your interview about wolves after you go visit oh, uh, man. the Wildlife Science Center in Minnesota. I can't wait. And I definitely uh, am very thankful for you for helping get that happen. And I will definitely uh, will do some kind of uh, follow-up podcast or something along those lines. It, I'll definitely be putting some of that stuff to social media to share the information. But yeah, it'll be a great, great uh, uh, trip there and, and great information learned. So... After all is said and done, obviously we're going to be creating lots of interest in people, you know, as this always happens, more questions and people want information where, so one part is where can people find some of the research that you've done? Uh, obviously you're, you can, you know, do a quick thing about the uh, dog nation website and where might be a good resource for people to go to look for the research that we've talked about. Uh, right now, I think, um, we don't have anything off the top of my head. Uh, I mean, my book has a chapter about teaching genius. Um, I hate to send people to read a book. Um, Dognition is really a citizen science uh, program. It's just to introduce people to this type of science. I mean, you have obviously uh, seen that. Um, I don't know if that's going to be uh, other than, you know, uh, a fun curiosity uh, in terms of actually using it in your work. I don't know that it would be that helpful. I think the best resource is probably, uh, I have a free online course. 
It's called dog emotion and cognition. If you just Google dog emotion and cognition, it'll come up. It's totally free. You just take it. And if you, and you know, I'll sit there and chat to you for four hours about dog cognition. <laughs> if, if, if that's what you want to suffer through, uh, it's there. Um, and I think that's the best resource. And, and I can say firsthand, and I've had some friends take that uh, online course. It's very, very helpful. Um, it answers a lot of the questions that typically get thrown at you. Um, so I, and I, and I'll, uh, in the show notes here, put a, a link to it if I can. Um, but no, uh, Brian, thank you so much for, uh, your time and, and talking to me and answering all these questions and, uh, ex- sharing your knowledge that you, the path that you've taken to get to where you're at. And obviously you and I will be sharing even more information to everybody throughout our, our research and our upcoming research down the road. So again, I thank you Cameron. for your time. Thank you too. No, this is this is great. So, everybody uh, that is listening to our podcast, we will have in the show notes various ways to find the research as I can for for what Dr. Harris put out, and also to his online uh, classes. And again, uh, I look forward to our you know further collaborations, and then we'll we'll maybe down the road do another one of these and share what we're, we got coming up or what we've learned in the past every X amount of time or months or what have you. So with that said, again, Brian, thank you very much. Thank you, Cameron. That concludes our episode with Dr. Brian Hare from Duke University Canine Cognition Center. I hope everybody enjoyed the episode. There is a ton of good information on there. If you have questions or if you would like to reach out to myself or Brian, maybe set up where we teach you uh, the concepts of these brain games to conduct for your selection dog testing, contact me at Ford at SilverStateK9.com. That's F-O-R-D at SilverStateK, the number nine, dot com. I am more than happy to help. Uh, We set up classes probably about every two or three months where we teach individuals how to do these cognition tests. So, again, hope you enjoyed the episode. Reach out to me with questions, comments, and or concerns. And we look forward to seeing you guys on the next one.